Hello, it's Tuesday, the 20th of December, and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. South Korea and the US have carried out a joint air drill involving US Air Force F-22 stealth fighters in continued defiance of North Korea's provocations. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Unions behind the recent truckers' strike have filed a complaint to the International Labour Organization over the Korean government's handling of the strike. We speak to an official from the ILO for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, we speak to Michelle Kim, an acclaimed pianist who also runs a charity in Hong Kong that helps troubled youths discover music. Let's begin Career 24. With North Korea continuing to carry out provocations, South Korea and the U.S. held a joint air drill on Tuesday, this time with Washington deploying F-22 stealth fighters and a B-52 strategic bomber to send a clear warning message to the reclusive state. For more on this story and our other headlines of the day, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hey, jang Good to be here with you again. Yes, it's quite a statement for the U.S. military to deploy these two types of aircrafts. Uh, Their presence can have quite the contrasting effect for the Allies and those that may pose a threat to them. Uh, Can you tell us more about them and the latest combined drills? Right. uh, These uh, planes are quite the technological marvel there, and they do not share this technology with the rest of the world. It's exclusive to the U.S. military for a good reason. The F-22 stealth fighters, also called Raptors, are... Unlike other fighters, they have technology that cannot be shared or exported. The Raptors mm. have been main, the mainstay of the U.S. military for a quarter century. So you think they might be outdated, but no, the technology has been updated uh, behind closed doors. Mm. This is the fifth generation of the Raptors. They display unprecedented air dominance and continue to do so with a unique combination of stealth, speed, agility, and situational awareness combined with lethal, long-range air-to-air and air-to-ground weaponry. Those who, even those are older retired pilots, talk about how incredible <laughs> their experience is, how it's in- uncomparable to any other fighter planes that they've flied in. Mm. Uh, the technology is so secretive that even Hollywood needed to wait a couple of decades to be allowed to even feature these planes in the movies. Sure. And as for the B-52H Stratus Fortress, it's a long-range heavy bomber that can perform a variety of missions, and they're capable of flying at high subsonic speeds and carry nuclear precision guided conventional ordnance with worldwide precision and navigation capability. If need be, they can actually carry out basically 50% of what a military uh, combat campaign would be required to do. The bomber's participation is usually at a last minute when there's nuclear missile provocation from North Korea. So very clear message sender, I suppose, to demonstrate the ironclad U.S. commitment to South Korea and its allies. Right, so these drills featuring these uh, high-tech planes took place in South Korea's air defense identification zone that's southwest of Jeju Island. Uh, This wasn't the first time that the Allies responded this way to North Korean threats, right? It wasn't the first time and it won't be the last time either. Mm. Uh, Apparent warning to North Korea following its claim in recent days to have tested a solid-fuel rocket engine and conducted an important test in the development of a recon satellite. The drills also featured South Korea's F-35A stealth jets and F-15K fighters. Last month, the Allies agreed to increase the frequency and intensity of the deployment of U.S. strategic assets on the Korean peninsula. The F-22s from Kadena Air Base in Okinawa were deployed to Gunsan Air Base in North Jeolla Province on Tuesday. Uh, the Raptors will remain in Korea this week for additional training with the F-35A jets to strengthen Allied capabilities against Pyongyang's nuclear and 
missile threats. So Tuesday's exercise is part of efforts to reinforce U.S. extended deterrence and, of course, interoperability maneuvers. The F-22s previously visited the peninsula for joint air drills in 2018 and a number of times before. Same for the uh, Stratus bomber. This all comes after North Korea fired two mid-range ballistic missiles on Sunday, as according to South Korea's uh, military. Uh, but the North claims the objective was to... Uh, in the end, to launch satellites, and the sister of North Korean leader reiterated such claims. Uh, Kim Yajang, she blasted South Korean exports experts who cast doubts over the regime's claims about what it calls a new recon satellite. Can you tell us more? Well, Jung, on Tuesday, the regime's state media reported that Kim Yajang claims she is bored and disgusted from listening to the what she calls nonsense of the South Koreans. Uh, South, Korea, South Korean experts said the images purported to have been captured by the test satellite were crude and uh, even useless, and that North Korea is engaging in tactics to deceive the South. The de facto number two figure of the regime, Kim Yo-jung, issued hard-worded statements on inter-Korean affairs and other external issues, and she ridiculed some experts for noting the obvious fundamental similarities between long-range missiles and satellite-carrying rockets, calling on them to stop the nonsense. Uh, she also condemned those who questioned whether the North has mastered the atmospheric re-entry technology for its ICBM. She said to explain to them to have no common sense. We could not receive remote data of the control warhead until it hit a target if the technology for atmospheric reentry was imperfect. That's her words. She hinted at the possibility that the North will fire an ICBM at a normal angle for the verification of its related technology, if need be. Uh, she said they will immediately recognize it in case we launch an ICBM in the way of real angle firing straight off. So this is something she sees as an option to haul the what she calls these experts' nonsense, and to make them think twice. Right, so some strong words there from North Korea. We'll see how they respond to the latest uh, exercises as well in the coming days. Let's move on to some other headlines now. The Bank of Korea says inflation in the nation posted an average of 5.1% through November, and this is the highest average rate since 1998. Right, 98 is a year of, we, of course, would not like to remember some of the dark days there. The BOK believes inflation will stay around 5% for at least several months until price growth slows down gradually thanks to stabilizing oil costs. And let's hear what the central banker, Yi Chang-yong, had to say about the situation after the BOK released its biannual inflation assessment report. Consumer prices soared 5.1% year-on-year in the January to November period and are expected to post the highest rise since 1998 this year. Due to the lifting of social distancing measures, inflationary pressure has risen on the demand side. A rise in salaries and raw material prices has also been transferred to product and service costs. In particular, prices of dining out have increased rapidly, posting a 30-year high of 9% in September. So some positive figures that the recent drop in crude prices, and we have the stronger Korean one, um, the curbed import prices, still not enough to resolve the rising labor and raw material prices there. Mm. The BOK governor emphasized the need to concentrate monetary policies on fighting inflation and consu- as consumer price growth is expected to remain above the bank's target inflation of 2% come next year. Uncertainty remains high looking ahead, mainly with supply-side risk factors that could jack up oil prices again. Of course, this includes the Ukraine crisis and sanctions that would naturally follow against Russia. 
Shifting gears, President Yoon Sang-yeol is expected to approve special pardons ahead of the new year during a cabinet meeting which will be held on December 27th. Uh, so we are hearing familiar names, of course, with one figure who doesn't welcome the proposal. Can you tell us more? Well, according to a senior presidential official, working-level preparations are clear, uh, nearly completed and a review of candidates will likely continue through next Tuesday. The results should be announced that afternoon before taking effect at 12 a.m. on the following day. Two big names likely on the list, former President Lee Myung-bak, whose 17-year prison sentence for corruption was suspended due to health reasons, and former South Gyeongsang Province Governor Kim Byung-soo, a close aide to former President Moon Jae-in, uh, but a pardon without reinstatement, meaning he can't run for office until the year 2028. The ex-governor serving a two-year sentence for opinion-wreaking charges does not want to be released on parole, according to him, as an accessory in Yoon's pardon for former President Yi. And finally, the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union under the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions submitted a complaint to the International Labour Organization against the South Korean government, a move that the groups felt was necessary over how the government handled the recent strike by truckers. So can you give us the latest on this? Well, the union, along with the International Transport Workers Federation, Public Services International and the International Trade Union Confederation, held a press conference and they announced they requested a probe into the government's violation of ILO agreements regarding freedom of association. The union accused the government of threatening the participants by conclusively declaring the strike to be illegal and then issuing return-to-work orders, which really pressured them and forced them to halt and return to work. It said the government also restricted the union's right to strike by mobilizing military vehicles and also personnel that can take the truckers' place by providing alternate means of transportation. That of the cargo truckers' solidarity urged the government to halt oppressing the truckers and come to the negotiating table to discuss extending a freight rate system guaranteeing basic wages set to expire this year. Yes, we'll be talking to a representative from the ILO next for our in-depth segment. But first, we wrap up our news briefing here. Thank you for those updates today, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you again next week. On December 9th, the unionised truckers' strike came to an end after 16 days. They were seeking to extend and expand the scope of the Safe Trucking Freight Rate System, which encourages safe driving by guaranteeing minimum rates. But the government's hardline stance that led to return-to-work orders, coupled with declining public support, led the truckers to vote to return to work without any of their demands having been met. Concerns over the situation were also raised by the International Labour Organization, particularly over the government's return-to-work orders, and a request was made to Seoul to explain its stance on the decision. ILO representatives also met with government officials last week to discuss the matter. To talk more about this situation and the ILO's concerns, we have joining us on the line now Karen Curtis, Chief of the Freedom of Association branch of the International Labour Standards Department, of the ILO. Ms. Curtis, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
So first, to give our listeners a bit more of an update, the trucker strike ended and the current uh, safe trucking freight rate system is set to expire on December 31st. The government seems to have taken uh, any compromise off the table, including a three-year extension to the system. What's your assessment of where things stand at the moment? Thank you very much for the question and for reaching out to the ILO. As you are aware, the ILO has a robust system of supervisory mechanisms to examine complaints of alleged violations of freedom of association. They're both tripartite and independent mechanisms that we'll be considering in the year to come the degree of conformity of Korean law and practice with freedom of association standards and principles. So my answers will therefore be general in nature and should not be understood as in any way prejudging the decisions and recommendations that these bodies will make. Nevertheless, I can affirm that social dialogue is the cornerstone of all the ILO's work. The ILO favors social dialogue as the most effective means for resolving labor disputes in a manner that can provide a win-win situation for all. I understand that sometime earlier this year, the government and the union had precisely reverted to such social dialogue to resolve the strike that had been called in June, bringing an end to it through mutual agreements. Ensuring the enforceability of collective bargaining agreements and an agreed mechanism for any disagreement related to the interpretation of such agreements avoids reactivation of such disputes and misunderstandings on the part of the parties. So as previously indicated, the ILO would encourage the parties to use social dialogue for a final resolution of the Mm. matter. Okay, so the greatest controversy from this recent strike stems from the fact that President Yun Sang Yeol issued a government order on the sixth day of the strike, forcing uh, striking truckers to return to work. Uh, And if they didn't, the uh, punishment was potentially a fine and even a potentially jail time. It was initially uh, truck drivers in the cement industry that were affected. Nine days after that order, though, the government expanded its return to work order to include truckers in the steel and petrochemical industries as the situation uh, between the striking workers and the government remained deadlocked. The unionized truckers have accused the Korean government of violating ILO conventions Uh, Ms. Curtis, could these back-to-work orders be, in fact, a violation of ILO conventions? So, indeed, here, just as I said at the outset, I would refer to the general statements that have been made by the ILO supervisory bodies. And the Tripartite Committee on Freedom of Association, tripartite meaning government, business, and labor, uh, represented to determine uh, cases concerning violations of freedom of association, it has held in a number of cases that back-to-work orders should only be used where a total and prolonged strike in a vital sector of the economy might cause a situation in which the life, personal safety, or health of the population might be endangered. And when it speaks of that kind of uh, being endangered, we're speaking of a clear and imminent threat. Mm. Uh, The CFA has also held in certain cases that while a stoppage of work in transport companies might disturb the normal life of the community, it cannot be seen as causing a state of acute national emergency. Um, And finally, uh, the CFA considers that determinations uh, as to the impact of a strike uh, with respect to national security or public health, these should be made by an independent body, having the confidence of the parties, such as the judiciary. Mm. 
before any decision is taken, such as a back-to-work. These decisions of the CFA were made looking at the specific circumstances of, of those cases that had been brought to before it, so it would also look at the specific nature of the strike in question, the allegations, and the government's reply, bearing all of these points in mind. I also wanted to refer to the views of the Independent Committee of Experts, which is responsible for examining the application of ratified conventions, and it has uh, stated while looking at the general situation of the right to strike around the world uh, within the framework of the Freedom of Association Convention Number 87, that while certain national systems continue to retain fairly broad powers to requisition workers in the case of strike, the committee considers it desirable to limit the powers of requisitioning to three circumstances uh, in which the right to strike may be limited and that public service for those exercising authority in the name of the state, mm. essential services uh, in the strict sense of the term, that's what I mentioned before, uh, life, personal safety, and health, um, and in the case of an acute national or local crisis. And finally, I just wanted to add that um, both committees uh, do consider that penal sanctions uh, should only be imposed in cases where strikes are no longer peaceful. Penal sanctions should not be imposed for peaceful uh, industrial action. Right. Okay. So there are uh, perhaps uh, extreme prerequisites needed for back-to-work orders. Uh, you're saying that the ILO would like the governments to consider and uh, perhaps uh, outside uh, uh, overseeing of the situation as well. Uh, so earlier this month, the ILO actually requested the Korean government to explain its stance behind the uh, return to work orders. Uh, the letter came after the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions and the uh, Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union urged the ILO to intervene ahead of uh, the invocation of the government order. Uh, can you tell us more about this letter? And also... Uh, Seoul Labour Ministry's response, uh, they downplayed the ILA's move, saying as it was simply a so-called inquiry of opinion, while the union said it was uh, the letter was a direct intervention. Uh, what do you make of those two differing opinions? So I think we need to look at this within the framework of what I stated earlier about mm, the sure. very intricate supervisory mechanisms of the ILO. And they are indeed the only bodies that uh, are mandated to examine and make recommendations concerning the application of either conventions uh, or, in this case, also principles of freedom of association and collective bargaining. Uh, the request for an intervention, and that's indeed how it is, is, it is called, uh, is an informal procedure of the ILO which enables the director general or an official acting on his behalf to draw a government's attention to concerns uh, that have been raised uh, to the ILO and to provide guidance where appropriate for resolving the conflict, most often through social dialogue, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, as a means of de-escalating any disputes. This type of engagement with the government is confidential, and it's uh, an informal procedure aimed at facilitating resolution. Hmm. Um, I therefore can say nothing else uh, with respect to the letter. Okay. The latest news that came out today was the fact that the union submitted a complaint, an official complaint to the ILO uh, against the South Korean government for its handling of the uh, recent strike. 
the union, along with the International Transport Workers Federation, Public Services International and the International Trade Union Confederation, said it requested a probe into the government's violation, uh, supposed violations of ILO agreements regarding freedom of association. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this uh, complaint and what we know so far? Yes, indeed, I can confirm that uh, the ILO has received a complaint from the Korean unions and the International Transport Federation. Um, we have just received this, and it will be brought to, to the attention of the Committee on Freedom of Association. The complaint procedure uh, from the ILO perspective is confidential until determined by the CFA, which will review the allegations, the government's reply, and draw its conclusions and recommendations. Um, uh, when I say confidential from the ILO perspective, the ILO will not um, release the, the details of the complaint, um, but the union is, is able to do what, uh, what it pleases with the complaint. So you may actually have it available already in Korea, I'm not aware. Sure. Uh, can you reveal yet... Uh what the possible outcomes uh, could be yet uh, from this complaint? Well, there will, as, I, as I indicated, the Committee on Freedom of Association would be examining that complaint within the framework of those um, general principles which I mentioned earlier in our discussion. Um, they will then uh, draw conclusions, taking into account what I would imagine would be very detailed information provided uh, both by the complainant but also by the government, uh, and make its determination as to whether it feels that there has been a violation of freedom of association and then a recommendation to the mm. government. Now, that process takes uh, about a year, uh, so you, I, you cannot really expect to see anything before the end of next year. I see. Okay. So uh, it will take some time then. I understand that you were also in Korea last week. Uh, during uh, your visit to Seoul last week, you met with uh, Korean government officials as well to discuss the matter uh, regarding the local trucker strike. Uh, can you tell us what was discussed during the meetings? Uh, what uh, did the ILO uh, talk say to the government? So, first of all, I can say that it was an off-the-record meeting. Um, so I won't go into detail about the discussion, mm. um, but I was very pleased that the government wished to make itself available to discuss this matter, um, to share their understanding of uh, the situation, um, and also to look at how it might be possible uh, to move forward to resolve the matters. Of course, from the Allied perspective, as I mentioned at the outset, for us, social dialogue is really the key. Um, I, I, I really do believe that that was shown uh, by the way that the strike in June had been handled. Um, I would be most you know, happy to hear that the parties would go back to the roundtable to discuss any remaining concerns and ensure uh, a way forward uh, that really uh, replies to the concerns of, of both parties. Mm. And you also met with officials from the KCTU, I believe. Uh, can you tell us more about what was discussed there? What advice, perhaps, uh, did you have for them, uh, seeing as uh, they are turning to you uh, to your organisation in this fight with the government? So I can say that uh, regularly when I go to a country union, seek me out, um, usually to, to request exactly as you have indicated, some advice about the island procedures. 
and that's my job, of course, to provide that advice. Um, I also shared with the unions, um, as I saw them uh, just after having met with the government, uh, that the government had expressed openness to resolving these matters through social dialogue. And uh, again, I can only repeat that this remains the allies' preferred options for resolving disputes. Uh, and I wanted to add simply that even uh, even though there has been already now a complaint submitted to the Committee on Freedom of Association, uh, the CFA believes so much also in using social dialogue to resolve disputes that it has uh, installed a mechanism whereby uh, if both parties request it, they can suspend a complaint for six months, suspend it from the uh, supervisory body's consideration in order to try to resolve the matter at home through voluntary conciliation. And here they can also uh, seek the assistance of the International Labor Office uh, in trying to resolve the matter. So again, just to say that uh, uh, social dialogue really is, is the, the, the way that the ILO would try to, to see moving forward in this regard. Sure, we hope that there is a dialogue uh, between the parties. Uh, in the meantime, we'll have to leave it there for today. We've been speaking to uh, Karen Curtis from the International Labour Organization. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 18.88 points, or 0.80% on Tuesday, closing the day at 2,333.29. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 14.09 points, or 1.96%, to close the day at 703.13. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 13.31 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,289.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment, looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, it's the turn of Diane Yu to join us in the studio today to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang It's good to see you. OK, so what topics have you brought for us today? So first, we'll take a look at a ski lift mishap in Pyeongchang that left more than 50 skiers hanging for more than three hours in icy weather. Next, we'll go over the latest news on China's alleged secret police operation in South Korea. And finally, we'll find out which Korean baseball star player has shown intentions to move to Major League Baseball. Okay, let's get into that first story then. You said a ski lift mishap. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us more? Something terrible happened to a large group of ski lovers at Alpensia Ski Resort in Pyeongchang-gun, Gangwon-do province on a cold night yesterday as the ski resort's lift suddenly stopped moving, leaving some distressed skiers hanging high above the ground. And thankfully, they were all safely rescued after three hours. According to the Gangwon-do Fire Department, the lift abruptly stopped at the ski resort at around 4.12 p.m. on Tuesday. Fire authorities issued a level one emergency response at 4.50 p.m., 36 minutes after receiving the report, and started responding to the situation. In South Korea, a level one emergency refers to a situation in which all personnel and equipment of the local fire department are mobilized and dispatched. The Gangneung and Cheongsan fire station near the resort, the Pan East Sea 
Special Response Team, the Central 111 Rescue Headquarters, and the Metropolitan Area Rescue Team were also mobilized, along with 30 workers from the police. Okay, so this was a big mission. Uh, How many people were stuck on the lifts altogether then? And how did the rescue teams uh, get them safely to ground? So a total of 54 skiers were rescued, with eight of them being saved by the resort's employees. Firefighters rescued the first three people at 5.17pm, starting with children and female passengers who could have safely be lowered to the ground at the top of the slope. Subsequently, wires were hung on the lift and paramedics climbed up and rescued passengers one by one by putting safety vests on them. Right, so in other words, uh, they never actually got the ski lift working again and the skiers had to be brought down uh, one by one, as you said. Mm -hmm. And the biggest issue was that this happened right in the middle of a cold wave that hit the nation with biting winds. The uh, temperatures were said to have been minus 10 degrees Celsius, Mm -hmm. but the wind chill meant it actually felt like minus 17 degrees Celsius. So was everyone okay in the end then? So it was a super, super cold night. And Mm. I can't imagine being left out in the cold at night, helplessly waiting to be rescued. Sure. But thankfully, no one was severely hurt. However, among the rescued, a child and two adults showed symptoms of hypothermia and complained of dizziness and were rushed to a general hospital in Gangneung. At least two skiers admitted to the hospital have recovered and returned to the resort. The last rescue skier safely returned to the ground at 7.48 p.m., about four hours after the incident. The police and El Pensia Resort are investigating the exact circumstances and the cause of the incident. Right, it's still not known what caused the malfunction, mm-hmm. but hopefully they will figure out soon so it doesn't happen again. Right. Let's uh, move on to our next story. What do you have for us? The South Korean government is reportedly investigating the revelation that China might have been operating secret police stations known as 110 Overseas Police Service Stations in South Korea and other countries to overwatch and suppress dissidents. The number 110 was given as it is named after the Chinese police emergency telephone number. According to Yanam News on Tuesday, the counterintelligence organizations of the military and police and related government departments such as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs were all mobilized to get to the bottom of this situation. If the investigation reveals that the Chinese government is in fact operating a secret police station in South Korea, it could have a major impact on the relationship between the two countries, including infringement of sovereignty and obstruction of justice. Mm, Of course, uh, all the facts need to be checked comprehensively. Mm -hmm. Uh, But who has made these claims and revealed this information in the first place? A Spanish civil rights group, Safeguard Defenders, revealed in a report that there were 54 Chinese police operation stations around the world mainly in Europe, and just last month it confirmed additional facilities in 48 locations, including South Korea. According to the report, the secret police stations persuaded China's dissidents using intimidation and threats to enforce an involuntary return of immigrants back to the country for persecution. The advocacy group is claiming that the Chinese police persuaded 230,000 claimed fugitives to return to China between April 2021 and July 2022. Mm. How has the Chinese government responded to these allegations? Well, Chinese authorities have denied all the allegations of the advocacy group. They're insisting that the station provides services such as reviewing, renewing driver's licenses and registering local houses for its citizens living overseas. And most importantly, they emphasize that the branches comply with international law and there were no illegal activities happening at said locations. Right, as we said, these are just claims for now, but many governments, including Korea, uh, as you said, are looking into it. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if uh, more does come to light soon. Right.
Now, moving on to our final story of the day, some exciting news in the baseball scene. Yes, reigning South Korean Baseball League MVP Lee Jong-hoo announced on Monday his desire to play in the majors. He informed his team, the Kium Heroes, about his decision during a visit to the team's office at Gokchok Sky Dome in Seoul. An official from the Heroes supported his decision and said, quote-unquote, an official conclusion will be reached after a discussion early next year. E, who joined this year's Korean Series runners-up in 2017, will fill his seventh season if he plays until 2023, fulfilling the qualification for overseas advancement through the posting system. And this is the first time that E officially announced his intention to make the big leap to the big leagues from the KBO. Right, so he has expressed his intent to try and make it to the MLB mm-hmm. at the end of next season. Right. So he's still sticking around in Korea for another year. Yes. Uh, for those who don't know, can you tell us a bit more about the posting system and how it will all work? Right. The posting system is a baseball player transfer system that operates between the Korea Baseball Organization and MLB. As I mentioned before, a player must have first played at least seven full seasons in the KBO to be eligible for the posting. And under this posting system, MLB teams have a 30-day window to negotiate a contract with posted KBO players. If a player reaches an agreement, their former KBO club will receive a transfer fee according to the signed contract. And soon after this uh, news release, MLB.com wrote a story about him and his potential in the major leagues, right? Right, like they were waiting for E to join the majors. (laughs) MLB's official website released a story about Lee with the title, This KBO Star Could Shake Up Next Winter's Free Agent Class, and calling him the grandson of the wind. They went on about Lee's betting skills, adding that he has the highest career betting average in KBO history with at least 3,000 place appearances. MLB even compared E to Toronto Blue Jays' Vladimir Guerrero, saying that you'll love E if you like Guerrero's ability to hit a ball anywhere it's thrown. So fingers crossed for Lee, let the best MLB team win the chance to sign this (laughs) outstanding Korean outfielder. Right, so it certainly seems there is interest already. Right. Okay, that's all for career training today. Diane, thank you for the stories, and we'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. In November, a music festival was held in Hong Kong's West Kowloon. The famed Korean soprano Sumi Jo performed at the opening ceremony, along with classical and pop musicians from Hong Kong. This event was organised by the Hong Kong Generation Next Arts, a charity founded by Michelle Kim, who is a highly regarded pianist herself, and she is our guest for this week's Touch Basins Hall. To tell us more about her career and her charity work, she joins us via video now. Ms. Kim, hello, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to have your wonderful program. Thank you. Yes, it is wonderful to have you on the show. As you mentioned, uh, you are a pianist yourself. You grew up in Korea. In fact, I believe you started training from a very young age of four. Can you tell us a bit more about how you got started? I think my story is probably typical child of um, young pianist who started very young. Um, you know, the parents were very much passionate about music, and I was very much influenced by that. And um, I was always around music. They, my father was a businessman, but he loved loved music, and so was my mom. So 
you know, since music is all around me and I really react to it, so I, they knew and they spotted that I was talented. So I started piano when I was four and with other instruments as well. Mm. And um, that's how that started. Right. As you said, uh, you were undoubtedly talented. Uh, you made your orchestral debut with this whole Philharmonic at just 10 years old as well, which is quite remarkable. Uh, but I understand that you actually also found it quite difficult to deal with perhaps some of the stresses that came with playing piano at such a high level as you were growing up, right? That's correct. Um, it's It requires a high level of perfectionism and also incredible discipline uh, as well as um, you need a lot of support from parents as well as teachers. So you know going in, um, once you're in that circle, of competitive um, circle, who are supposedly the talented kids, um, you know, you're always surrounded by that. And sometimes you're inspired by it. Sometimes you're encouraged by it. But a lot of times because you're, since young age, you need to be subjected to such a perfectionism that it can um, leave some of negative impact. Uh, negative impact. Mm. Um, but um, I think in the beginning, I actually enjoyed being competitive and enjoy being on stage. Um, so, for instance, my debut with the soul, Phil, um, you know, playing Mozart Concerto, it's still a, still a favorite concerto of mine. And um, it's it gives you um, such a new insight to performing with the orchestra and listening to different instruments. So I quite enjoy that a lot. Mm. But once you get into that circle, uh, you need to spend lots of time, like 10 hours a day, and you need to be locked up in the practice room. So, you know, you can't help but being one-sided, and you can't help but being um, kind of trapped in the circle of practicing, perfecting, and um, good and bad. Um, this high discipline is amazing. Mm. Um, I still have it, and I, I think that's the reason, that's one of my tools for life that I carry forth. However, at this time of like puberty and teenagers, it, you know, you have to maneuver yourself very well and, and you need to uh, surround yourself with the loving and nurturing people and teachers and, and um, support systems. So it, it's, it's just like anything, <laughs> excessive can be um, negative, it could leave a negative impact. Sure. But, you know, music in itself is such a gift for life. So I always have that in me. However, um, just like in anything else, um, highly, highly, perf when something requires highly perfectionism in every possible concert and performance, um, it's, it's hard to um, take that sometimes, you know, so that, that was not easy for me. But, um, but in hindsight, that gave me strength. So. Sure, there is a very uh, moving talk uh, that's available to watch online that I believe you did back in 2013 where uh, you talk more about your uh, struggles with the pressure you dealt with back then and I do recommend our listeners to uh, check that out as well as you do speak so eloquently and movingly and also amusingly about your experiences as well. Still, you did manage to study at the prestigious uh, Juilliard School in New York. You ended up performing in major concert halls around uh, the world in your career including Carnegie Hall and the Lincoln Centre and uh, with your performances also being televised in the US, Europe and South Korea. Uh, did you enjoy that part of your career more as well as you uh, later on in your life? 
I, I enjoyed it all. I, I must say that the performing parts, um, you know, experience different culture and meeting different audiences. Um, it's such a joy. However, um, you know, to to sometimes carry that um, that part, that wounded part. I mean, I was in my TED talk. Um, I hope I hope that your viewers can watch that as well because it has a good and bad. Um, but that was my journey of uh, becoming who I am today. And um, I think once you're trapped in the circle of being competitive and being number one, and and just like in anything, if you want to be the best as you can be, um, you know, there's no room for uh, failure. There's no room for being a mm. second prize or being second best. So then there's no room for sharing. But then again, music is meant for sharing. And that's that was my journey of going and, and performing. I realized once you kind of cross over that circle of professionals, uh, being a professional pianist, then you realize, wow, it's not really about being perfect, but it's actually about connecting with the audience. Mm. It's about um, sharing what's in your heart, what's who you are. So um, I share a little bit about, you know, the negative impact, like I would have a habit of kind of like giving, try to control something. So then I would scratch myself. But, you know, I think that every um, students, like high schoolers could, um, especially ones in Korea, could really relate to that because going into college exam, such a pressure, it's not just music, but in anything, such a pressuring environment. Um, there's a lot of things can be happening emotional, and spiritual and physical and we're intricate beings so um i think in some ways music really kept me sane mm. but then it's not the music in itself but it's myself mm. and it's the how i dealt with my surrounding so concertizing I, I loved it very much and then i think that that's the way i re fell in love with music and how i really thought wow this is that's the tribute of music not being perfect but actually connecting and sharing so um, I think that's how I got to change my mind and change about like who I am and how, what I want to do in life. Sure. So music is for sharing. I think that's a wonderful sentiment. Uh, with that in mind, uh, you eventually moved to Hong Kong, where you're based now. And in 2009, you founded uh, Hong Kong Generation Next Arts, the charity you mentioned at the start. It is a Hong Kong charity dedicated to helping young artists and changing lives through music. Can you tell us more about this organization and what led you to establish it? Well, it's actually an interesting story. Um, I was, 2009, I, I always tell people I had two, two children. Uh, one was actual, my first um, born son, my um, only son at that. Um, and I had a very difficult childbirth and because I, I nearly died, it was very, very difficult mm. labor and I, I, I really pray to God that please let me be okay and let me live. And if my baby's okay, I won't just live for myself. I will, I will use my talent to do something for the community or my surrounding. Um, and I, I thought that, um, you know, I, I, I pray and I was okay after a few months later. But then the opportunity presented itself after a few months later. Uh, my son was born in May and um, I found the charity in December. Going through that, um, I was bedridden because I was very, very sick. So then, 
you know, pianist that I was, I always practiced most of the time and mm. and I couldn't sit still because I, I, I had to lie down and I really had to internalize who I am, what I want to do and what I pray for. And then meanwhile, I was going to church um, and this church that I was going to in Hong Kong, um, you know, she's a UK British missionary who served in Hong Kong and um, she had a rehab center who, which is, um, you know, they're they're rehabilit well they're healed by the faith and mm. uh, they some of them are drug addicts some of them are ex gangster kids but um, she just met me and then say well you know I know that you're a pianist mm. so then right. you know I heard that you want to serve and would you teach my boys so I was that's not quite what I had in mind at the time <laughs> I was thinking more like you know, um, doing something or maybe mentoring kids sure. who are, um, you know, a similar background. I didn't know that I had to leap that much to um, to that degree, but um, I did pray. So I followed what I said and I obeyed. And I thought I could just kind of disappear after a month because I had my child and um, my child was only four months old. Sure. So then, um, you know, they we developed a bond. So... That kind of led to HKGNA, Hong Kong Generation Next Arts, because I, I realized that, wow, I really can do something for mm. the community. If I could connect with these kids who are, you know, risk youth, um, they're the delinquents, what they say, and they kind of passed away and kind of gave up. But then I really connected through music, the power of music. Mm. So I thought, wow, I could really do this for the community, and why not do it for bigger scale and and with a charity that right. um, so so that's that's the the actually the way way I founded the Hong Kong Generation Next Stars in two thousand and nine December. Mm. So um, that's the beginning of HKGNA. Right, and it's been thirteen years now since then, and yes. uh, it's. We wanted to first also talk about uh, the music festival that you held uh, last month. Yes. Uh, with soprano Chosumi. It was uh, under the theme Music on the Harbour Front, and it starred classical right. music musicians, including the uh, HKGNA Music Festival Youth Orchestra, also Canto pop stars as well. It sounds like it was quite a special and meaningful event. What did this event mean for you? And looking back 13 years, uh, what does it all mean to you, this charity? I think we are pretty unique and special and also i feel uh, immense pride that um not only we embrace the underprivileged and our disadvantaged youth but we could also present the greatest soprano of our time um soprano sumi joe so that's the power of um, music and through power of music we could break down boundaries whether you are the super superstar of superstar and the disadvantaged youth. So we also presented the autistic pianists and the blind pianists. And, um, you know, this is our ninth festival. Uh, our first festival, Chong Myung-ha, Chelis Myung-ha Chang, and also the uh, Son Yarum, uh, Kang Jumi, all the greatest classical superstar has come and present. We have presented and we're so grateful. And also Richard Yong Jae Onye. But this year was especially, um, we are, so proud that we were able to do this outdoor event, um, three-day outdoor event, film and music. Mm. And this was supported by the Tourism Board of Hong Kong. 
And, um, you know, a lot of Hong Kong people in general really support it. And I have to say that, you know, we're we're deeply grateful to the Culture Center, Hong Kong Korean Culture Center, and uh, also Chong Yong Sagwan, uh, Korean uh, Consulate General in Hong Kong, for their continued support since the beginning. So um, I, I have to say, you know, I think that, you know, as I'm getting older and I'm the founder, but, you know, as I'm getting older, I truly feel like I'm so proud to be Korean. And I feel like whatever I do, I carry my being Koreanness, you know, where fears will do all the way, like, you know, all the way, even though there is a lot of, uh, you know, the factors of uncertainty, like pandemic in Hong Kong, there's Mm. a quarantine of the, the Koreas, um, you know, right. when they were all lifted, we still were living under the quarantine. So I think that the, the belief and the faith and um, the Koreanness really, I, I carry forward. Right. And now we're living in a time of K-culture being the forefront in the, in the worldwide. Mm. I feel it. And I, I right. think that I am one of them to feel so proud to be Korean and and I think that people just just love what we have to present it. So Soprano Sumi Jo came, right. and people loved her. Even the <laughs> pop star um, sure. fans, she got a lot mm. of pop star fans. Um, and we we and that's another thing about uh, you know our festival that we we do crossover. Miss Kim, so unfortunately, we, we are yes. running out of time. Uh, oh, but you are okay. clearly very passionate and very. Uh, uh, you believe in what you do, and it is amazing to see. And uh, it sounds like it was an amazing event. And we wish you all the best for your future events as well. Uh, we've been speaking with a pianist and the founder of the Hong Kong Generation Next Arts a Charity, Michelle Kim. Thank you once again for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I am pianist William Yoon. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We finish up with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us Walter Lee, our <laughs> contributor regularly uh, for uh, Career Trending for today. He is filling in for Richard in this uh, segment. So, Walter, it's good to see you again in this segment. Yes, it's always lovely to be here. <laughs> okay, so uh, what do you have for us first today? Okay, so first is an article coming out of the Korea Times by Park han on the positive impact that Webtoons has on the print industry. Okay, so Webtoons, yes, it's a very popular form of... a. Uh, digital media here in Korea with uh, some stories even uh, spawning streaming adaptations of mm. course such as Hellbound and Itaewon Class but uh, you're saying that it has a positive impact on the print industry as well how so? 
Yes, so a survey of 3,500 online readers conducted by the Korea Creative Content Agency showed that 29% of consumers have bought the paperback versions of their favorite webcomics. Now, this is actually up 6.4% age points from 2020. Now, a female teenage participant of the focus group told researchers that she likes the idea of being able to have her own copy or her own hard copy of the webtoon over reading it digitally, with a male participant in his 20s saying that it feels different when you read the printed version of the cartoon. Well, it's great to see that it has had a positive impact on the print industry, but I'm still guessing that it's no match compared to uh, television and movie adaptations, right? Yeah, that's correct. So 47.4% of respondents said that the television drama adaptations were their favourite, with 44.7% favouring movie adaptations. Now, a male teen from the focus group said that he finds it to be an interesting, enjoyable experience seeing how the television dramas try to interpret the original webtoons. Now, webcomics could also potentially move into non-fungible tokens or NFTs uh, in that market sometime in the near future. But this is met with some criticism as 31.5% of respondents said that they have no intention of consuming this content. But on the other hand, 33.9% said they would. Right. So I'm guessing uh, most people aren't uh, getting on board this NFT train, (laughs) shall we say. But it it is interesting that uh, it is having a positive impact on the print industry that they are looking for uh, novelised versions of their favourite stories. Right. Okay, let's move on to a second story. What do you have for us? Yeah, so next out of the Korea Herald by Choi Jiwon, some news on where else you could see K-pop sensation BTS. Yes, uh, with the member Jin departing for his mandatory military service last week and more members set to leave in the near future as well. I guess uh, uh, ARMY will be wondering when they can see their beloved K-pop band next, right? Yeah, that's correct. So fans will be able to see, and I guess for some, relive BTS's last concert, which was held at the ISAID main stadium in Busan on October 15th. Now, in cinemas starting on February 1st next year. Now, this is according to a local multiplex franchise. Mm. Now, the film will be called BTS, yet to come in cinemas, and is set to be released in theatres in over 110 countries globally. Now, the concert was held as a support for Busan's bid to hold the 2030 World Expo, to which BTS were honorary ambassadors. Yes, of course. Okay, so a film of that concert is a coming out then. Mm. Uh, What are fans expected to experience at the screenings? Well, the movie is said to last for at least 103 minutes and will display some cinematic filming and editing technologies. Now, the movie will not only be shown in regular 2D screens, but also in high-tech 4DX and ScreenX formats around the world. Some of the hits they produced the night of the concert were Dynamite, Run and Boy With Love. There will also be an Army Bomb special premiere event for those hardcore fans. Now, official from the local multiplex holding the screening said, We hope people could visit the theatres and feel the heat of the concert through large screens and rich sounds. Yes, this is going to be one of, uh, I guess, several placeholder events <laughs> until uh, all the boys can gather once again and hold a real concert uh, for right. the fans in the future. OK, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.